Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 10. We'll begin our reading in verse 23, and we'll read through verse 25. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. It is as sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. As the whirlwind passeth, So is the wicked no more, but the righteous is an everlasting foundation. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation today is from the reverend and veteran commentator Matthew Henry from his comments on Deuteronomy chapter 32. It is a great piece of wisdom and will contribute much to the return of sinners to God seriously to consider the latter end or the future state. It is here meant particularly of that which God by Moses had foretold concerning this people in the latter days, but it may be applied more generally. We ought to understand and consider, number one, the latter end of life, and the future state of the soul. To think of death as our removal from a world of sense to a world of spirits, the final period of our state of trial and probation, and our entrance upon an unchangeable state of recompense and retribution. The latter end of sin and the future estate of those that live and die in it. Oh, that men would consider the happiness they will lose and the misery they will certainly plunge themselves into if they go on still in trespasses. What will be in the end thereof? Jeremiah 5.31 Jerusalem forgot this and therefore came down wonderfully. By wonderfully there, that means what? That means in a kind of miraculous way and a completely unexpected way. All right, so what I'd like to do uh, is continue our study in Proverbs 10, 23 through 25. Uh, We have, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, what what the upright man does in the face of sin. It's fools that make a mock of sin, that make a jest of it, that make a game or a sport of it. But what does the righteous man do? And you'll remember that we we did the implication work and said, well, he's going to mourn over that. And we did that from the rest of Scripture, from what we call the analogy of Scripture. Uh, well, how, how do we interpret any uh, more obscure passage of Scripture? By looking at the clearer portions of the Bible that help us. And while Solomon doesn't finish out his parable here, or his couplet, we know how to finish it out from the rest of the Bible. And so that's what we did. Now we move on from that, and we look at this, this end of things, But before that, let me remind you of five things 
that we looked at last week. Five reasons why the wise and understanding grieve or mourn regarding sin. We said, number one, it separates us from God's favorable presence, sin does. Number two, it withholds good things from us, the professed people of God. Number three, it is the source of soul injury to ourselves and our loved ones. Four, going on in sin engenders a growing blindness. And we are not able to turn from that because we cannot see the light. And then number five, we said, and this is the most important reason, that it grieves us because it grieves our Heavenly Father. And that knowing that he is grieved is that great motivation to us then not to desire to grieve him in anything. So that's what we looked at last week. So we're going to leave mourning or grieving over sin. And now we're going to do something that very few people seem to be able to do today. Uh, it doesn't matter where we look. If we look in the family, if we look in the, in the civil estate, even if we look at churches, we find a, a growing inability, in my opinion a growing inability to consider the end of things or the ends of the courses that we choose. Often we hear in political discourse today, we'll hear uh, one politician accusing another. Of course, when that one that accused is then the one in power, the other will accuse him of the same thing. And it just goes round and round and round. But what, are, what is one of the accusations that we get today or that we hear, he's, quote, Kicking the can down the road. And what does that mean, to kick the can down the road? It means not to solve a problem, but to push it off, because to solve it would be too painful and would risk re-election. And so instead of doing the right thing, the upright thing, the thing that is necessary to be done, uh, you know, the, those who serve us in the civil estate are sworn to be servants to the people, but rather they have styled themselves in their actions and perhaps even in some of their thoughts and speeches, not as servants, but as rulers to be served. So they, they, they will simply, quote, kick the can down the road. And what will happen there, and I, I'm not talking about one side of the aisle or 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 the other, but what generally takes place then is that the problem becomes worse, but that's okay because everything runs on a two or a four year cycle, right? And so it doesn't really matter what it's doing way down the road. It doesn't really matter what the end of this is because we have something immediate or near immediate that needs to be taken care of. Now we all nod our heads, we understand that, that that's a problem in our political estate. Um, and yet... It's not just a problem there, is it? Solomon calls upon us here in verses 24 and 5. Notice what it says. The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. So there's a, there is both a contrast and a similarity in that verse. The contrast is the fear of the wicked versus the desire of the righteous. The righteous has a desire. It is something that is before his eyes every day. It is something that he desires to do to be pleasing to his heavenly father. That is before him every day. And the end that he reaches will be commensurate with that. With that desire of his. But notice with regard to the wicked. It's that which he fears. That will come upon him. 
And this is because the wicked man always works against the natural light that he has where he knows that there is judgment coming. Yet he will, can I use the phrase? Kick the can down the road rather than to deal with the problem. And so the problem with the with the wicked in this passage is that although he knows what's coming, he is able to put it away from him. He is able to push it away from him in such a way that he can deceive himself, he can put it out of his mind, he can put it out of his present thoughts just long enough to continue in it, never to think about where it ends. And this happens, beloved, in little things, and it happens in big things. We all know this about ourselves. It's something that we deal with on a daily basis. Um, there's, a, there's a point at which uh, Jacob will say to his sons, why did you even tell him that you had a younger brother? Why did you even tell him that? Didn't you know where that was going to end up? Of course they didn't. But this is the implication of Jacob's statement there. Often we've, we've chuckled together, haven't we, about you know, wanting to eat in a particularly healthful fashion. And so we're standing in line at that counter and, we, and we're saying to ourselves, salad, vegetables, salad, Vegetables. We get to the front of the line. Uh, yes, what, what can I get you, sir? Pizza. Or something else. Tacos. Something fried and greasy, please. Right? And why do we do that? Well, we do that because for those few seconds, when we got to the front of the counter, we were able to disconnect the end from the particular time that we lived in. We know this about ourselves. The, the scriptures present this in, in uh, quite a few passages. We heard from Reverend Matthew Henry in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32. So... You'll remember what Deuteronomy 32 is. There are those, it's very interesting, in my years as an exclusive psalmody preacher, I have encountered people that wanted to, to engage on that issue. And one of the things they will want to engage in is, well, you know, Moses wrote a song. He did write a song. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's not a worship song, though. Uh, just a cursory reading of it would tell you it's not a worship song. But even before that, when the Lord says he's going to give Moses this song, and he's to write it down and to teach it to the children of Israel, uh, the purpose for it being given is not that they might use it uh, to praise the Lord, but that they might use it to be reminded of their coming judgment. It's a judgment song. It's a judgment upon the people of Israel. And so what Deuteronomy 32 is, as a song, 
is that it teaches the children of Israel that after they get into the land, they will not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And they will become thorns in their sides and pricks in their eyes. And they will teach them to, uh, to worship other gods, them and their children. They will give their children in marriage to unbelievers. And the offspring that are born, as we read uh, all the way at the end of, of the, in the restoration, they won't even be able to speak the language of Canaan, Hebrew. They won't be able to speak God's language. Uh, Jeshurun will wax fat, as it says here in verse 15. The Lord speaks about a fire that will be kindled in his anger because they did not do what he told them to do when they came into the land of promise. It all started, though, very, very early, didn't it? There was a few little things that they didn't do. But along with those few things that they didn't do, one of the things that they didn't do was consider where those things would lead. Listen to what it says then as we pick up in verse 26. I said I would scatter them into corners and would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord hath not done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall and their clusters are bitter and so on. What did they fail to do? They failed to consider their latter end. They failed to see what they rationalized. They reasoned with themselves just like we do, beloved. They said, oh, we won't have to destroy them. I'll tell you what, we'll make them tributaries instead. Did that last? It didn't. They didn't remain separated from them. It was but two or three generations and they were found mingled with the heathen. And then in their mingling with them, we remember great King Solomon also married foreign wives. And they led him astray. And so their, their tenure during the time of the monarchy was tenuous at best. And they were invaded and attacked. And the Lord forgave them when they called upon his name. But then, fully and finally, they were cast out. And when, at the end of their apostasy... They even rejected and killed the Lord of glory. The Lord brought their house down. They did not consider their latter end. And beloved, that's because the latter end is always worse. It is always bigger. It is always an accumulation of these little apostasies that fed into it along the way. Wisdom maturity spiritual maturity 
will cause us to stand up and take notice at those, may I call them the little foxes, that eventually end up spoiling the entire vineyard. These are the things that Solomon is pressing to our understanding. And may I ask, is there anyone who would be more qualified to tell us that than Solomon himself? We thank the Lord that it seems to me anyway, as an Old Testament reader and studier, that Solomon did spend a very large portion of his adult life in apostasy. But it does seem that he comes to his senses in the end. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Lord grants him repentance. But this, as the wisest and most opportune man in the world. So, we, we talked about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah here in Deuteronomy 32. Let's turn to Ezekiel 16 for a moment. Verse 44, Behold, everyone that useth Proverbs shall use this proverb against thee, that is, against Jerusalem. That's what's being said here. Um, As is the mother, so is her daughter. Thou art thy mother's daughter that loatheth her husband and her children. And thou art the sister of thy sisters which loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was an Hittite and your father an Amorite. And thine elder sister is Samaria, she and her daughters that dwell at thy left hand. And thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Yet hast thou not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, thou wast corrupted more than they in all thy ways. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride Fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did they strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. Isn't that an interesting passage? How do we remember Sodom? Do we remember Sodom according to what Ezekiel tells us here, or do we not rather remember Sodom in the name that she has lended to the English language? Rather the latter, I would suppose. Yet, where did it start? Pride. Fullness of bread. Prosperous ease was in her and in her daughter's. They didn't know how to handle earthly riches. And because they didn't know how to handle earthly riches, they became inflamed with themselves, saying, we might infer from the passage, my hand and the power of my might has gotten me this wealth. Instead of acknowledging the Lord God as the owner of all things 
and the responsibility to give God glory in everything, whether it's our eating and drinking or whatever, it el- whatever else it is that we receive. And so beginning then with pride and satisfaction in earthly affairs, she ended up in this sin that we know uh, because she's lended that name of hers to the English language in so doing. It is abominable, isn't it? It's an abominable sin. Did it begin in abomination? It did not. Did she consider her latter end? No, she did not. Just like Jerusalem and Israel did not consider their latter end. The little things, the little things that draw us off. And we've talked about this before. I I think I've related to you the story where my wife and I went with a couple of others and we were, we were going to go scuba diving uh, to this gas rig in the Gulf of Mexico. And, of course, the, the, you know, the boats now, they all have GPS, right? And so he plugs in the, the GPS coordinate of this gas rig where we're going. We can't see it. It's, you know, miles and miles out. And he sets the compass and, the, and it's got an auto tiller that sets that course and here we go. And we're halfway there, two-thirds of the way there. And then the, the, uh, the pilot of the boat calls us over and he says, You see that little speck over there? That's where we're going. That's the rig we're... You know, we, we didn't see it until two hours in motoring up toward there. What if we were two degrees off in the compass bearing? What if we were one degree off in the compass bearing? Would we consider the latter end or would we call that close enough? Well, one or two degrees at that kind of distance means you'll pass by that gas rig without ever seeing it. It'll be too far away. One of the things that you also learn, here's another scuba diving reference, is you can go down to the bottom and you can maybe set your compass bearing and you can, you can set a straight course. And if the current is moving across you like this, you won't notice that you're not swimming straight ahead. You're swimming like this. Even though your compass bearing is straight ahead, you're actually moving in this direction like this. And if you need to get back to a certain spot, you'll pop up and there'll be nobody there. You have to consider, beloved, your latter end. What direction are we setting? This is what Solomon would remind us of here today as he tells us that the wicked, you know what comes upon him? That which he feared. He was afraid of it. But he was able to put it out of his mind just long enough to keep after the course, not considering his latter end. It was a little thing. In in Sodom it was simply pride. But it ended in abomination. Moses, speaking for the Lord, will lament, Oh, that Israel had considered his latter end. Turn with me to Psalm 73. We might say Asaph in Psalm 73 stands on a precipice 
He's standing on a precipice. What is that precipice? Well, here's what, he's, here's what he says. I beheld the wicked. There's no bands in their death. They're not plagued like other men. Uh, pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them in a, uh, as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They're corrupt. They speak wickedly. Concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walketh through the earth. And nobody says anything to them. I said, finally, surely in vain have I cleansed my own hands and washed them in innocency. What profits it if I should be upright when I look at the wicked and they're walking, it seems, at liberty? What is the profit there? But notice also what Asaph says. Verse 15, If I say, I will speak thus, behold... I should offend against the generation, notice, of thy children. Already he's thinking ahead, isn't he? When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, Thou castest them down to destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Now notice what what, um, Asaph says about his former attitude. Thus was my heart grieved And I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. To refuse to see the latter end, beloved, it is to live as a beast. Some of you have beasts at home. You have maybe a dog or a cat. I know some people have snakes for pets and other such things. You know what you know what beasts do? They seek whatever it is that they're looking for for the moment. They seek that momentary comfort. Most of you know the Dallas dog. I I I always know what Dallas what's going to make Dallas comfortable because that's what she's doing. She's going to find that place of comfort. It doesn't matter what the end of it is. If it's comfortable for right now, she'll take it up. Well, Asaph behaved himself, he said, like a beast. He refused to see their latter end. So, Solomon is training us here. Solomon is helping us to see that there are ends of things. Would that Lot had thought through this process as he moved his tent Toward Sodom. What did Lot lose? He lost his wife. He lost his, his daughter's suitors. He lost his home. He lost truly his respect. He lost his chastity. 
He lost many things. Why? Because he did not consider the end of his actions. He moved his tent toward Sodom because it was well watered as the garden of God, a beautiful place to live. So Lot also did not put first things first. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon will remind us of something else in chapter 8. Verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. This evil man, this sinner, he does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged. And so what does he say to himself? Everything's okay. He doesn't consider his latter end. He mistakes God's patience and long-suffering for approval. And so he refuses then to consider his latter end as well. Our Lord Jesus Christ also spoke of this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. So notice the spelling of the word straight. It's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. It's S-T-R-A-I-T. Most of you will recognize that as a geographical term. Like we hear all the time in the news, the Straits of Hormuz. Or the Bosporus Straits. A very strategic part of the world even until today. What is a strait? It's a narrow strip of water between land masses where ships may go for shipping, warfare, or other such purposes. That's what a strait is. And so Jesus says here, enter in at the straight gate, but straight doesn't mean straight in alignment. It means narrow, pinched, more difficult. The broad way is the easier way to navigate. There's no corners to bang into your shoulders and your elbows, and your knees. You don't have to turn sideways. You can blunder and and bluster on through without fear of injury. It is not as easy, however. It is not as facile. It is not as pleasant to go through that which is narrow or straight. Yet, that's the way that leads to life, Jesus says. And following our, quote, gut or our, quote, instincts, following that which is pleasant, easy, and broad, is the way that leads to destruction. As a fallen race of, of, of 
human beings, as a fallen race of human beings, what do we want to say about this? We want to say that our instincts, our guts, our, our fallen reasoning is indeed always inclined toward that broad way. And that it is that which comes from Christ and that new conception of things that we have as people that are indeed made after God's image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness by regeneration following that straight way that is more difficult, requires more discipline, that that's the way that leads to life. But notice that Jesus speaks of two ways and two destinations. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 18 for a moment. Verse 21. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all uh, that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations of the wicked man, or that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness <coughs> that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, shall he not save his soul alive? Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. Two ways, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And, if, if, if I can put it interestingly, a shunt between them. There's a way to go from one path to the other path. You can, while on the path toward the celestial city of righteousness, you can leave that path and you can travel the path of wickedness and start going the other direction. Or, if you're going toward destruction and you turn, there's a shunt to get you over to path righteousness and you can go that way. Again, we're not teaching merit religion here. This is by faith in Jesus Christ and turning from evil and turning to Christ in repentance and in faith. But beloved, keep in mind that these two 
paths have two very different ends. When the children of Israel, Moses says, turn from the Lord, it is because they did not consider their latter end. Turn to Amos chapter 6 with me for a moment. Verse 1. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Kalneh and see, and from thence go ye to Hamat, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day. And cause the seat of violence to come near. That lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches. And eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. That chant to the sound of the viol and invent to themselves instruments of music. Like David that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive and the... And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. We looked at this passage earlier when we were talking about grief for sin. Now, because it teaches what we're looking at here, we look at it again. Another facet of this passage. What did these men do? They put far away from them the evil day. It's far away. It's a long way off. Judgment time's a long way off. What is that sin? What do we call that? It's presumption, beloved. It's presumption. Presumption is a wicked sin. It lulls us into a complacency and sleep with regard to righteousness where we cease considering the latter end. And we put far away the evil day. They have seen destructions come upon others. Kalna, Hamat, Gath. Remember that that uh, Rabshakeh spoke of those cities as well. The Assyrians were coming. They have heard the warning of the godly. They have sat under the preaching of the word and heard of mercy and judgment. But what are they doing instead? They are so much in love with their ease that they put far away from them the evil day. Why? Because to consider our latter end often, beloved, let's admit it, it's hard. It's hard. It means we may have to to curtail some things that we enjoy and so on. In Amos chapter 9, we have a, a, a similar passage. Verse 7, 9, 7. Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. Saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners... Of my people shall die by the sword, which say, The evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. We're able to put that threat away. 
in our minds. But we really ought not to do that. The Lord threatens us even with gospel threatenings, as we've said earlier, so that we might turn to him in repentance and in faith. So Solomon then is is driving us down this path to consider our latter end. Beloved, let us consider it. Let's turn back to Proverbs 10 as we draw ourselves to a close. There are indeed two classes of people that are mentioned here, the wicked and the righteous. The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. If I told you I have something in each of my hands here, in this hand I have fear, and in this hand I have desire, (laughs) which hand would you choose? Well, you don't have to think about it. You're going to choose desire, not fear. But notice what the wicked man does here. The fear that haunts the back of his mind, when it finally comes upon him, it will not surprise him. It will not surprise him at all. There is a certain fearful of looking for of judgment and consuming fire that will devour the adversaries as the, the uh, apostle describes it in Hebrews chapter 10. We say in our larger catechism that when the Lord Jesus returns in flaming fire to take vengeance upon his enemies, that when the wicked stand before Christ and he opens the books, it will be with full conviction of their own consciences that they are indeed judged guilty. They will stand before the judge who brooks no argument. It'll be in full conviction of their own consciences. They knew it was coming. Beloved, let us be wiser than that. Let us remember the latter end of the courses that we choose. Those things we, oh, I I know I should be doing this, but excuse comes in. And then, you know, maybe it's once a day, maybe it's once a week, maybe it's once a month. But then suddenly we examine ourselves and we recognize it's no longer just once a day or once a week or once a month. Now it's twice. Now it's three times. Now it's four. Now it's joined by other signs of spiritual weakness as well. And we've already gathered momentum toward that unholy end. We saw, didn't we, that Sodom started out with something that sounded fairly innocuous. They were prosperous, and it led to pride. What was the end of it, though? It was abomination. Any society that starts out prosperous, which leads to pride, if they don't check that, history shows that it leads often to the same abomination. The Apostle Paul will speak of that in Romans chapter 1. He'll say the end of that path looks like this. May I say, it looks like our country. We must turn away from such things. But we must turn away from them before they become monstrous and abominable. We must hear that. We must hear the hoofbeats of that latter end at the beginning. And turn away from it then.
and have that little extra measure of grace and discipline that God is pleased to send his people so that rather than the fear of the wicked coming upon us, it will be the desire of the righteous. And what is the desire of the righteous other than greater and growing communion with God and with his son, Jesus Christ? Let us do those things then that make for that. Verse 25 teaches us that as the whirlwind passeth, so is the wicked no more. But the righteous is an everlasting foundation. We want to make for those things in our lives that lead us to uh, those expectations and those ends. So the implication then is startling that when our society runs at breakneck speed into sin and debauchery, we understand that the witness of the church must stand against this, not to tolerate and not to excuse it. The wicked have an internal witness placed there by God that they that do such evil are liable to the judgment of God. Right? Romans one thirty two. Note how the apostle says that they have a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. And so we know something about the unbeliever and rebel against God that he or she refuses to acknowledge. We know that they know. When we speak to unbelievers and especially those who are involved in such wicked courses. We want to know, or we want them to know that we know that they know. We want to do what Francis Schaeffer said, that is to take the roof off of their system and show how terrible and inconsistent and damaging and injurious and finally how it leads to destruction. But beloved, this is our duty. Rather than to be affected or conformed, we must stand against that growing tide and speak a word in season to him that is wearied in finding the door, if you get my drift. So beloved, the desire of the righteous will be our portion. Notice, the expectation or hope of the righteous shall be met. And so may I say it to you this way, you have nothing to fear and everything to gain in recognizing early those coarse deviations that lead to perdition. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain in serving the Lord. Why? Because the end of that course is himself. Remember Asaph. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire but thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so rather than looking at riches and skewing off of the course of righteousness which leads to destruction, remember that the desire of the righteous shall be met and that we will have that everlasting communion with God himself. So there are so many scriptures that affirm this principle. It would, be re, it would be tedious to recount them all. Let us simply say this. That the desire of the righteous. It shall be granted. Uh, that full communion with the Lord. Belongs to the people of God. So we need not fear then. Evil and calamity. Because there is nothing that can separate us. From the love of Christ. 
Um, so you're in a, uh, you know, it's, it's the end of the year. The company that you work for is having a, quote, holiday party. Call it what you will. And so here you are in mixed company with a number of unbelievers and some of these sensitive topics come up. Beloved, remember your course in such times. Remember the course of those with whom you speak. And as God declares in Ezekiel 18 that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I, I, I believe that is spoken especially to us as the people of God so that we will take no pleasure in it especially either. And that we will do what the Lord has put into our hands to recover that wicked one from the way of wickedness and cover a multitude of sins. We live in difficult, dark, dreary days, days of weariness, even for the people of God as, we, as there are fightings without and fightings within. But beloved, every choice that we make with regard to those things, the Lord's grace helping us, let it be that choice that is focused on that end goal and remember that little course deviations at the beginning of a course make for large missing of the target at the end. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we would consider the ends of things. We would consider our ends. The ends that we uh, choose for others that are under our authority or purview, such as our children, as churchmen, when we think of the church members that God has given us in charge, that thou hast given us in charge. When we think of the civil estate, uh, that there is a, a connection between us all in that estate and, and where we're heading as a people. Oh Lord, help us not to be like the ancient Israelites. May the lament of Moses never be said rightly over us. Oh that they had considered their latter end. Lord, help us to consider it. Help us to be like that, that wicked man of Ezekiel 18 who considers and leaves his wickedness. And Lord, help us at all times then to keep one foot in front of the other toward that heavenly kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver us, Lord, from coarse deviations and we pray, deliver us from them early. Grant us wherewithal discernment. Grant us also proper discipline of ourselves. And rulership, governance, temperance over our desires. And grant us those desires that lead to life. O oh Lord, we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.